If you have your Bibles, take them and turn to uh, the book of 2 Thessalonians. If you're visiting with us this morning, welcome. Uh, and uh, one of the things that we do here is we just work our way through a book of the Bible. We've had a few weeks of break from 2 Thessalonians, and we have the opportunity now to dive back into it in the middle of uh, probably a difficult um, section of Scripture. As you're turning there, if you didn't don't have a Bible, there's Bibles in the seats in front of you. You can use one of those. Uh, two things to uh, remind you of. First of all, next Sunday here at the church at 2 um, p.m., we have a memorial service for Ernie Conero. And uh, so if um, you're able to be in attendance for that, we invite you to come. We do need some sandwiches and squares. And so if you're able to make some um, goodies or a plate of sandwiches, it would be much appreciated for that service. Uh, and also life groups begin this week. Uh, you can find the notes for those. Um, uh, they're on the back tables or you can also find them online. And if you aren't yet in a life group and you'd like to find out more about one, um, Will will be at the back table there and you can chat with him and uh, find out more about life groups. Let's read this section of scripture. I, I want to read a, a little bit a longer section than what we're going to look at, but let's start at verse 9 of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and uh, we'll go to verse 15. Um, I'll deal with uh, verses 9 to 12 this week and then 13 to 15 next week. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refused to love the truth and so to be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that they may all be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by a spoken word or by our letter. Father, thank you for this time now that we can gather around your word. And as we work our way through it, Father, would you give us some um, clear thinking? Would you reserve our judgments, Father? Would you, um, would you allow us time to reflect and to consider and ponder your word? Sometimes we're so prone to react rather than to listen, to speak rather than to hear. And so as we work our way through this, Father, um, thank you for minds that you have given us to think rationally. Help us to think rationally and reasonably this morning. Thank you for hearts, Father, that are full of affections. May we have affection for you and for your word. And thank you for wills, Father, that uh, can take these things that we know and these things that we understand and can obey them and practice them. Father, we thank you for this living word. Make it live in our hearts and lives, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. As we come to 2 Thessalonians now, I'm happy to be back in the book. It's been a journey for me. Uh, I always uh, benefit richly from just the opportunity that I have to study and to think through texts and then to try and put them together in some coherent fashion for us as a congregation as we gather together. Paul is addressing a group of young Christians. Um, uh, they haven't been uh, followers of Jesus for a long time, and they're facing all kinds of different troubles and uh, difficulties. One of the things that they're facing is persecution or affliction. 
because of their commitment to Jesus Christ. And they're feeling it tough. They're feeling this battle. Their, their, their steadfastness is, is certainly being attacked and challenged. And so one of the reasons Paul writes them is to remind them that this world in which we live is linear. Uh, history is linear. It has a beginning and an end. And so their afflictions aren't endless. There will come a day in which Christ will come back again. And when he does come back, the judgment of God will be, will be seen to be applied to the world in which we live and to men and women. And so their afflictions will be um, made right in the judgment of God. So there's this wonderful path that God is taking them on to realize that no, hang in there, God will judge the world in the end. There's also, though, this reminder, this reality that the end of the world is going to be marked by the return of Jesus Christ. And that's one of the clear things that is described in 2 Thessalonians is this anticipation of the coming of the Lord. That day when we will be gathered together with him, uh, uh, the, the, the return of Jesus Christ. And as is in our day, so as in their day, there is confusion about that. There are all manners of different kinds of teachings about that. And so Paul has become aware that even amongst this young church, there has been confusion about what it means to wait for and look for the coming of the Lord. And so he's been addressing some of those things and we're picking up along the line of part of Paul's discussion relating to the time and the events and the circumstances of the coming of Jesus Christ. Um, one of the things that Paul has been describing for us is the times that will characterize the end of these last days in which we live. He's pretty clear about them. It will be a time of deception. There will be all manner of those that will come along and will try and lead us away from the truth, will try and lead us away from God, will try and lead us away from fixing our eyes on the return of Jesus Christ. And so Paul's advice would be just be careful to this young church. Be careful who you listen to. Be careful what you listen to. Be careful to what you believe. Secondly, he says the times will be characterized by lawlessness. We talked about that a few weeks ago. Lawlessness is, is, is simply that. It's a rejection of authority. It's people determining to do what they want to do, what is right in their own eyes. And uh, the scripture describes this time of lawlessness. It will be lawlessness in the home where kids will not want anything to do with the authority of their parents. There'll be lawlessness in schools. There'll be lawlessness in society. There'll be lawlessness to police authority. There'll be lawlessness to government authority. And he says that will characterize the, the coming, uh, the, 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 the approach to the end of this age in which we live. And so he says, be faithful. Remember to consider the authority of Christ. Remember to realize that God has constrained us and protected us and provided for us by giving us authority. He says it's also a time of divine restraint. In other words, there's something that's holding back lawlessness right now. We talked about this about three weeks ago. There's something that's holding it back right now, but there will come a day in which God will say, okay, that restraint is gonna be moved and it will be all out moral chaos, all out authoritarian chaos in the world in which we live. And so Paul would say, be watchful. Don't forget what you've been taught about that particular time and day. And then he says, the coming of the Lord will be preceded by the revelation of the Antichrist. Now, John has told us there are many Antichrists, little a, that have characterized this last 2,000 years between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. 
spots around the world in which uh, evil has particularly flourished and hatred towards Christian and God and the things of God has particularly been strong. But he says there's coming a day when the Antichrist, capital A, will show up on this, uh, on, uh, will, will be revealed in this world. And on that day, then there will be uh, this total giving over for a period of time to his leadership and to his rule in this world that Antichrist will be destroyed by the coming of Jesus Christ. With a breath of his mouth, he will destroy him and put him in the lake of fire forever and ever, and then the end will come. And so Paul is working through these things with this young church, helping them understand uh, the situation in which we live. One of the things I think that you've probably already picked up as we go here, there's a lot more going on than meets the eye. One of the things that we certainly believe as Christians is, yes, there is a physical reality. There is a mere material reality to the world in which we live. You're sitting on real chairs. We see things with our eyes. We touch things with our hands. There is a physicality to this world in which we live. But there is also a spiritual reality to this world in which we live. And that spirituality is as real, and in fact, if not more real, and it's, it's eternal versus this material world in which we live, which is temporal. This world in which we live is going to be destroyed. It's going to be burnt up where the spiritual realities will exist eternally. And so there's this intersection. There's this dynamic at play between the spiritual world in which we live and the physical world in which we live. And Paul is describing that as we go into this. As he leads us into this, he describes two kinds of people. And I, 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 at the risk of being simplistic, the Bible says that all of humanity can be described or divided into two groups. Do you know that, right? All of humanity can be divided into two groups. Variously, we would say there are the children of Satan and there are the children of God. The Bible very clearly says that humanity has two fathers. Either your father is Satan or your father is God. There's no third option there. The Bible also would describe it as offspring. In Genesis 3, 15 and 16, he says there that there is the seed of Satan and there is the seed of the woman. Two humanities. One humanity, two peoples within that humanity. You read through much of the Bible and you will find that uh, humanity is divided by a description of the wicked or the righteous. There's, there's no middle ground there. There's no gray ground there. There are either the wicked or the righteous. Two kinds of people. He also, you go to uh, 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 Matthew and there's parables. There would say there's wheat and weeds. Um, there are sheep and goats. Um, there are, there, so, so humanity is divided into two peoples. And Paul is now going to describe for us another way of understanding that. There are those who are perishing and there are those who are being saved. Humanity is divided into those two categories. Either one is among those who are perishing or one is among those who are being saved. There are no other options. And the, the crux of what determines, um, uh, from a human point of view, which group you are among is your response to the truth. And we'll come to that in a minute. But what is your response to the truth? Those who are perishing reject the truth. Those who are being saved accept the truth and obey it. Paul in one place describes it this way. He says, for the word of the cross, that's the truth. 
We'll, we'll look at that a little more. The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. Two peoples, one truth. Your response to the truth determines whether you are among those who are perishing or those who are being saved. And so today, we're going to look at the first group, those who are perishing. How does Paul describe them? What does he tell us about them? What are the realities that, that help us understand the perishing in this world? As we think about this, I, I want you to think very carefully because this is going to challenge you this morning. The Word of God always challenges us, but sometimes more than others. And so I, I want you to listen to the description that Paul gives of the perishing, of the influence that influences that come to bear on those who choose to reject the truth. And so we've got three ways of looking at them. The first is simply to describe those who are perishing. Those who perish, um, to perish means to be sent into eternal punishment in the lake of fire or to be lost. To be among the perishing would be to be among those that Paul describes back in chapter one, I think it's verse eight, is to be among those who have been destined to eternal ruin, to be away from the presence of God and the power of his might. To perish is to be eternally lost. It's a spiritual reality as it is also a physical reality. It's not annihilation. It's away from the presence of God. And you might say, okay, so why do people perish then? I don't know if you've ever worked that out in your head. Is it simple? Is it complicated? But why do people perish? Why do people perish eternally? Why, do, why are people destined to eternal room, ruin? Well, here is God's answer. It's one of the most significant statements about salvation you'll read anywhere in the Bible. But here is Paul's answer. You can read it yourself. Don't take my word for it. Read verse 9. Because they refused to love the truth and so to be saved. That's how he describes those who are perishing. They refused to love the truth and so be saved. In other words, he says it's a human choice. It's a personal choice. It's an unwillingness to accept the gospel. And when it says to love the gospel, that means to obey it. To take it seriously. Jesus, talking to some of the religious leaders, said, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you might have life. The issue is not ignorance. The, the issue is unbelief. The, 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 the issue is not a lack of knowledge or understanding. The issue is a choice that they make not to believe the truth about Jesus Christ, which is who is revealed in the scripture. It's not a lack of information. It's disdain for that information. It's a refusal to accept the truth. If you were here last week, we talked about Belshazzar. You remember the story of Belshazzar who saw the writing on the wall. He was petrified. And so Queen comes in and says, listen, there's a guy that can tell you about this. And so she goes and gets Daniel. And you remember, Daniel comes and he tells Belshazzar, he, he reminds Belshazzar about his father. He says, you, do you know about Nebuchadnezzar? And if you know the story of Nebuchadnezzar, he was full of pride. 
um, he went out on his um, palace one day and he looked out and says, look at this wonderful world that I have made and this kingdom that is mine and my, 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 look at my pride. And God brought him down. God humbled him until he acknowledged that God was the most high God and repented and God restored him. And remember what Daniel said to Belshazzar? You knew all of this, but you did not honor the God who holds your breath in his hand and directs the course of your life. It wasn't ignorance. It wasn't a lack of knowledge. Belshazzar knew all of that. He knew the ways of God. He knew the truth about God. He knew the truth about Nebuchadnezzar, but he refused to believe it. He rejected it, even though he knew all of this. He did not honor God. And so why do people then refuse to obey the truth? Well, because they love their sin. Because they have embraced sin. Because their whole heart and mind and will now is governed by another principle. That is why people suffer eternal ruin, as Paul says, because of their sins. The wages of sin is what? It's death. All have sinned. Not most, not just the ones who refuse the truth. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The perishing love their sin. The perishing want their sin. The Bible describes it in uh, another way. It says they loved darkness rather than the light. It was a choice that they made. It was the sin that they love. And so they refuse to love the truth. Now, we can see this illustrated if you um, want to follow me. If you want to turn to Romans chapter 1, and we can illustrate this same sort of process there from Scripture as it describes this same sort of refusal there. Uh, starting in verse 18, it says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness un and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So you see what's going on there, right? They make a choice. They're confronted with truth, but rather than accept it, rather than obey it, they suppress it. They press it down. They cover it over. They ignore it. They hide it. And then Paul goes on and he says, for what can be known about God, listen, is plain to them. It's not ignorance. It's not lack of knowledge. It's not lack of information. It's plain to them. And what's plain to them? He says, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. Well, how has God revealed himself to mankind? For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. Do you understand what he's saying there, right? You look at the world around us and the natural conclusion is, wow, there must be a powerful being that made this. There must be a powerful being that sustains this. The stars, the sun, the moon, the planets, the seas, the earth, everything that's on it, everything that's in it. Me, the complexity of my life. When I go to the doctor and he describes what's going on me, it blows me away. They are without excuse. They have knowledge. They have an awareness says, for although they knew God, there it is again, although they, again, it's not ignorance. For although they knew God, 
They did not honor him as God. That same as Belshazzar. Even though you knew all of this, you what? You did not honor me. And so they, he says, you did not honor him or give thanks to him, but you became futile in your thinking and your foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up to the lust of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. This is willful disobedience. It's willful refusal. It's not a lack of knowledge. It's, it's not that anybody can say, well, I, I didn't know that. No, it's a choice to refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Perishing not because of ignorance, but because of a choice, a decision to suppress the truth, to hold it down. And so what is the truth? It's important that we what is it that they are refusing to accept? He says they refuse to accept the truth. And you can see that truth is dominant uh, in this particular text. Um, he says that they refuse to accept the truth so as to be saved. And then a little bit farther down, it says that um, they will be condemned who did not believe the truth. So there's the truth again. They did not believe the truth. And then a little bit uh, farther down, it talks about those who have, by the Spirit, been able to believe the truth. So the truth is the center point. It's, 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 it's the truth and our response to it that determines whether we're among the perishing or among those being saved. So what is the truth? Well, the truth is certainly the truth about Jesus. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. What do you do with that? Some people say, I don't believe that. I don't believe that the God of Jesus is the only God. I think there's a ton of different ways to, to God. So no, I don't believe that. I refuse to believe that. It could be, and it also includes, not could be, it also includes the truth of the gospel. We know what the gospel is, right? The gospel is that I am a sinner, that I am in need of salvation. I can't save myself. And so God sent his one and only son to be the sacrifice for my sins. Christ lived perfectly, obeyed perfectly. He died on the cross, paying the penalty for my sins. He was buried, which was a proof of his death. God accepted his sacrifice and so raised him from the dead. And whoever would put their faith in Jesus Christ would be forgiven of their sins and enter into eternal life. People reject that outright. I don't need that savior. I'm not that bad a person. I can work my way into God's favor. I can buy my way into God's favor. I don't need to be reconciled to such a God. And so they reject the truth of the gospel. There's the truth of God revealed in the world, which I've already said. We say, well, somebody hasn't heard about Jesus. Well, somebody hasn't heard about God. Well, the world in which we live reveals God. We just read from Romans 1, his, invi the, his invisible, invisible attributes are displayed in what he has made. Psalm 19.1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God. Day to day pour for, pours 
forth speech. It's as though every time you look at the world in which we live, and I'm sure that if I asked how many of you, when you drove here today, looked around, you said, man, this is amazing. What a world we live in. Look at the mountains. Look at the sky. Some of you are up early enough to see the sunrise. Some of you are up late enough to watch the sunset, and it's not that late anymore. Do you look at that and say, wow, the power of whoever put this together, the power of whoever sustains it, the incredible wisdom that created this body that makes salmon return to the exact same stream in which they were born. The heavens declare the glory of God. God is revealed in the word that he has made. How many people now look at the world and say, no, God was involved in this. It just happened. Something from nothing. They refuse to believe the truth that God created this world by a word of his mouth. The truth of scripture. Some look at this book and say, it's just a bunch of words. It's human words after all. And there's a bunch of, there's some nice words, but there's also a lot of wrong stuff. There's a lot of stuff that really has no relevance to today. It's contextual. It doesn't make sense. Like it speaks of a time and we live in a different world now and they refuse to obey the truth of scripture. We refuse to obey. But we, we see the truth revealed in our bodies, in us. Do you know that every single human being is created in the image of God? We know that. We sense that. Why, why do you, when you fall asleep, and I, I suspect that everyone here who has any cognition at some point has fallen asleep and said, I wonder what happens when I die. Or maybe a friend has died or a loved one has died, a grandparent or a parent or a brother or a sister, and you fall asleep that night and you say, I wonder what happens when I, there's got to be more to life. Where does that come from? Well, Ecclesiastes says God has set eternity in the hearts of all mankind, all humankind. We are made in the image of God. That's the truth about our bodies. It's the truth about who we image. So what we're saying is they refuse to acknowledge the revelation of God in any one of these ways so as to be saved. So it's a truth issue, loved ones, and it's a choice. What will you do with the truth? Now, to help us realize that it, it's complicated, and I want you to realize this because sometimes we have this very, very flippant, well, I've got free choice. I can choose whatever I want. I choose God. I choose sin. Decisions are made in a sterile room. You don't have a blank slate every time you have to make a decision on something. There is a lot of things that come to bear on any decision that you make. So think about this. One day, King David was sitting somewhere, probably in his palace or up on the walls, and maybe he was watching the changing of the guard, or maybe he was watching some of his troops come back from a battle. And as David was watching all of this, he had this thought go through his head. I wonder how many fighting men that I have. Now that in itself was a sinful, well, the thought wasn't wrong. It was a temptation then to commit a sin because God said, don't number the fighting men of Israel. So David sitting up there said, I'm going to number the fighting men of Israel. 
<laughs> wow, he had a choice. <laughs> Saw his men, made a choice. I'm going to number them. So then about a week later, you're reading in the book of Chronicles and you come into First um, Chronicles 21.1 and you read there and it says there, then Satan stood against Israel and incited David to number Israel. <laughs> Whoa, what? I thought David made that choice. Oh, and then you read the inspired word and it says, well, oh, there's much more, more, more going on than meets the eye. Remember I said there's a spiritual reality and there's a physical reality. So it wasn't Satan that made David choose that, but Satan incited him. Satan influenced him. Wow, I, wow, I never thought about that. And then you, about two weeks later, you're reading in 2 Samuel. And you come to 2 Samuel chapter 2, verse 4, and you read these words. And again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he incited David against them to number them. Whoa, and you bang your head on the wall and you phone Barry. <laughs> Do you understand what I'm trying to point out here? Decision-making is complex in the world in which we live. And so while it is very true, by their own choice, the perishing refuse to love the truth. There are things pressing in upon them that confirm them in their choices or deceive them to make those choices or to continue in those choices. As we come then to see those, we realize that there are two energies that are also working against the perishing. And I say energies because that's what the word is used in the Bible. So it says very clearly in verse 9, the coming of the lawless one is by the activity or the power or the energy of Satan. So Satan is at work behind the Antichrist and the final Antichrist, and it describes how he's at work with all kinds of false signs, all kinds of wonders, um, and with all kinds of wicked deception. So Satan is infusing the lawless one with abilities to try and influence the decision of people. But there's another energy at work, and it's in verse 11, which, we'll, which we're going to come to in a moment. It says, then God sends among them a strong energy or a deluding energy. Exact same word, exact same tense. So at work in those that are perishing is not only their choice, but there's also the working of Satan behind the Antichrist. And then there's this work of judicial condemnation by God that's also at work. And so... Let's quickly look at these. The power of Satan. It's the power behind one uh, unbelief. It, it's the coming of the lawless one is, is infused or in, uh, it's empowered by the power of Satan. You can read this. I don't have time to go through um, Revelation 13 and look at the two beasts, particularly the land beast and the way that that land beast um, energizes uh, the beast. But he says that with all miracles, mighty deeds, false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception among those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth so as to be saved. There is a clear work of Satan at this world in which we live now. He is called the angel of light. He is called um, uh, the, uh, our adversary, the, the roaring lion. We read again and again of the strategies of Satan in this world. But there is a restraint on Satan that when this final Antichrist will become, will be lifted and Satan will be loose to deceive the world wildly. 
And it's described again in Revelation chapter 13 with all kinds of signs and wonders. And so I ask, do you know your own heart? Do you know what you're susceptible to? Do you know what wows you? Do you know what influences you? Do, do, do you know what catches your attention? Do you know what motivates you to make certain decisions? Are, are you aware that that stuff pushes you in one way and not the other? I can always say, you know, I used to say, my kids have free will, but I can determine what dessert they will choose every time. I can put tapioca before them and I can put a piece of chocolate cake and I can tell you every time what they will choose without making them choose chocolate cake. So there are things that impact our decisions. Satan is not powerless. He's called the God of this world. He says the whole world lies in his power. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 and 4, it says the whole, or he has blinded the eyes of those who are perishing. See, there, there's a work of Satan also that is trying to deceive. Now, you might, some of you might remember some of the stories in Scripture which illustrate these. Remember Pharaoh uh, and the people of Israel? And uh, finally, God had said, okay, I'm going to deliver them. And he raised up Moses and uh, gives Moses Aaron, and he has a staff. And he's going to perform a, humble, a bunch of miracles before Pharaoh to remind Pharaoh that he is God, not Pharaoh. And so he takes this staff and he does three things. He takes it once, he throws it on the ground, it turns into a snake. Pretty amazing, wonder. And then another time there's um, all this water in the land of Egypt and he smacks it with his, Aaron smacks it with his stake and it all turns, with his staff and it all turns to blood. Wow, wow. And then there's a third thing that comes up and all of a sudden, um, Aaron does something and frogs appear everywhere in the land of Egypt. And you think, wow, that's got to be pretty convincing. But if you read that text, you'll find out that Pharaoh's magicians copied every single one of those. They took their staffs, threw them on the ground, and they turned to snakes. They had water brought to them and they performed their magic arts and turned it into blood. They were able to make Frogs appear where there were no frogs. And as long as they were able to do that, people said, ha, ah, our God is just as strong as your God, and they wouldn't change their mind. And all of a sudden, Moses and Aaron did something that the magicians could not copy. And all of a sudden, they said, this is the finger of God. The reason I point that out is because there is a very real power that Satan has. I don't understand it fully, but there is a real power that he has. It is a power that is able to deceive. You think of this in Deuteronomy chapter 13. It says, If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and that sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass, and if he says, Let us go after other gods which you have not known and let us serve them. Do you understand what's going on now there, right? There's a very real power that this prophet or dreamer has. And he performs this and a sign or a wonder takes place. And then he says, look, that's my power. Now follow me after these other gods. He's trying to deceive them. He's trying to get them to disobey God. He's trying to pull them away from worshiping God. Those signs and those wonders are intended to influence and deceive them to make the wrong choice. 
And so there's a very real power at work in the little antichrist, in the big antichrist that will come at the very end. Jesus says the very same thing in Matthew 24. He says, false messiahs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. So you see that our decisions are not as simple as we think they are. This is why it matters what we read. This is why it matters what we watch. This is matters matters what we listen to. We have this phrase, this, this weird word now of influencers. They are paid to influence you to make certain decisions. The influencer of all is Satan. The strong delusion from God. I know some of you are troubled when you read verse 11. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion. Sends who? The perishing. Therefore, why? For this reason. What reason? Because they refuse to obey the truth, and so, so they refuse to love the truth so as to be saved. For this reason. Because they refuse to obey. They've made a decision to disobey the gospel. God's work on their behalf is not the cause of their unbelief. It is the consequence of their unbelief. Big difference between the two. And so for this reason, the reason that they refuse to love the truth, what? God sends among them a powerful delusion, a, 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 a work of, uh, of error, uh, an energy, as I already said. How? We don't exactly know, but I suspect it's through the signs and the wonders that um, Satan influences the Antichrist with. It's with the all-wicked deception. To who? To those who refuse to accept the truth. Why? so that those who are perishing may believe what is false. Again, God acts not as the cause, but as the consequence of unbelief. This is the judicial hardening of God that, that uses sin to punish sin. This is evident throughout Scripture. You, you can find this in, in Genesis chapter 6, verse 3, as God is about to, to punish the whole world with a flood. As he's talking there, it says, my spirit will not always strive with humankind. I understand what that's saying. It's just saying there comes a time in which people have continued to make a choice after choice after choice, and God says, okay, I'm, I'm not going to obstruct that choice any longer. You're free to go down that path without any constraint by me. Pharaoh hardened his hearts numerous times. You read this in Exodus. He hardened his heart. He hardened his heart. Moses did a miracle. His own magicians did it. He hardened his heart. And then you read in Exodus 9, verse 12, and this is the first of a couple times, where it says, the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. So Pharaoh walked down this path of continuing to refuse, continuing to refuse, and God just hardened it as a judicial punishment for his ongoing sin. In Romans, we read it, Romans 1, 20, uh, you can read it yourself, Romans 1, 24, 26, and 28. Because men and women continue to suppress the truth, because they continue to not honor God, because they continue to worship creation rather than creator. It says God gave them over. God gave them over. God gave them over. He lets them go. Isaiah saw the glory of God and God talked about Israel and its sin and 
said, who will go? And Isaiah said, I'll go. And then do you remember what God said to him? In Isaiah chapter 6, verses 9 to 10. And God said to him, go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and their minds and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. It's a passage that Jesus quotes again and again in the Gospels. It's why he uses parables so that people will not understand who are hardened in their unbelief. God's action is purposeful. It's a, design, it's a powerful delusion. It's a judicial act on his, in, on his behalf so that they might believe what is false. We see this around us, don't we, in the world? Embrace the lie. God is just, it seems like God has just given people over to follow their sin. Thank God. Like, I was working through this, and, I, and we'll talk about this next week, but God, why did you restrain me? Why were you merciful to me? Why your grace? Why your mercy? I don't fully know but I'm so grateful. So in the present time, it says God sends a powerful delusion, so they refuse to believe. Satan is at work trying to deceive them. God sends a powerful delusion that hardens them even further in their sin. In order that, this is now moving us to then, in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. See, what you believe will determine your behavior. Every single time. If you reject the truth, you will pursue wickedness. And don't think of wickedness as sort of the evil witch of the West. Wickedness is sin. It's pleasure. It's following the lusts of your flesh. If you refuse the truth, you will find pleasure in wickedness. If you accept the truth, you will find pleasure in righteousness. They go together. You can't have one without the other. What you believe determines your behavior. Have you received the truth? It's not ignorance. There, there's not a person here that doesn't know the truth. You know the truth. What will you do with it? Do you, do you accept it or do you reject it? Jesus said, I want you to hear this. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Jesus is the truth. Turn to him. Put your trust in him. Welcome him. There's no other name under heaven whereby which a man or a woman can be saved. And then I think one of the most beautiful passages of scripture, and I want you to help me say it this morning, which is God's counter, if you will, to all of this. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever perish but have everlasting life. Did you get that? Should not what? Should not perish. God has provided grace and mercy for you. God has no delight in the perishing of anyone. He desires your salvation. Look to Jesus. 
and be saved. Father, we thank you for your word today. It's helpful sometimes for us in simple terms to realize that there are only two peoples in this world. There are only two humanities in this world. And all of them find their destinies determined by their response to truth, the truth. Father, all of us are without excuse. There's not a single person that can stand before you and say, I didn't know, that can stand before you and say, I was ignorant. All of us, though, are responsible for what we do with what we know. I thank you, Father, for many here this morning who have obeyed the truth and are being saved. I pray for any here this morning that are continuing to refuse to love the truth. Father, may you yet be merciful to them. May you yet take the blinders off their eyes that Satan has put on them. May you yet remove your judicial sentence upon them and be gracious and merciful to them. I thank you, Father, that you have loved this world. You've shown that by sending your son, Jesus. And if we would look to Jesus, we would not perish, but we would be saved. The hope of the gospel. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.